This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend The Calculating Stars by Mary Robinette Kowal. Do you like hidden figures? Well, here's something very similar, but more science fiction. This is the fascinating tale of the space program that could have been if humanity, instead of exploring the stars because of the Cold War, had to do it because, well, frankly, they had no choice and the world was ending. It's a fascinating story, it's really well done, and it made me really appreciate that as much as I think space is cool, I have no desire to ever try and actually go there. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 324, The Tajin Scandal, part one. This week, I want to tell a story about one of the aspects of the 1930s in Japan that is usually overlooked when discussing that time period. You see, the evergreen question of 30s Japan is, how did a country that looked to be trending towards liberal democracy in the 20s see its parliament, and indeed the very idea of democracy, completely discredited by the end of the decade. What made that slide away from liberalism and towards fascism possible? And usually when we tell that story we focus on two events, one in 1932 and another in 1936, to explain how this came about. First, in 1932, we have the May 15th incident, this is the famous case where the sitting Prime Minister Inukai Tsuyoshi dared to critique the actions of rogue units of the Imperial Army in invading Manchuria without any official sanction or order to do so, because remember, that invasion took place as a part of a conspiracy by right-wing army leaders. It was not ordered by the Japanese government in Tokyo. For this critique, Inukai was brutally assassinated in his own office by ultra-rightist members of the Imperial Japanese Navy on May 15, 1932. His murder and the fact that, in the face of overwhelming public support for that act, the courts slapped the 11 murderers with a minimal sentence, had a huge chilling effect on democracy in Japan. After all, if you were pro-democracy, you were not going to speak up too loudly anymore, because what happened to Inukai might happen to you, and the courts might, well, not even punish your killer. Then, four years later, you have the coup attempt of February 26, 1936, when members of the Imperial Army, inspired by the Japanese fascist Kita Iki, attempted a coup d'etat to remove evil advisors around the emperor and install their own fascist regime. This coup was suppressed, but only after the personal intercession of the emperor to condemn this act of rebellion, which, again, didn't do a lot for confidence in the concept of democracy when this unelected sovereign, rather than the civilian government, has to be the one to step in and restore order. 
These two events do cover a lot of ground in explaining that collapsing confidence in any form of civilian government. I mean, we're talking about two incidents of political violence in the capital of Japan in less than half a decade. How could it not? But there's another event that comes right in the middle of these two in 1934 that also plays a part in undermining confidence in the system and paving the way for broad acceptance of an end to democratic rule, and it's that event I want to start talking about this week. The event is called the Teijin Scandal, or the Teijin Incident, because remember, in Japanese history, everything is an incident, and so our first question, naturally, is what the hell is Teijin? Teijin was and is a chemical company that specializes in the production of fancy textiles. That company is actually still around, and it's now under the umbrella of Mitsubishi. It should not be confused, of course, with Teigin, or the Teikoku Ginko Imperial Bank, which was the one robbed after the mass poisoning incident. Completely different things, take my word for it. Now, I should clarify that by fancy textiles, I don't mean that Teijin made things like expensive designer clothing or stuff like that, but synthetic textiles. So today, for example, they do a lot of work with carbon fiber. But in the 30s, their biggest business was rayon. Now, for those of you who are not super up on your different types of textile, rayon is a synthetic fiber made from cellulose, essentially a type of highly treated plant matter. Once it's treated by a huge variety of chemical processes, which I will be honest, I really do not understand, it can be respun into this fiber that can imitate other fibers very effectively and at a much lower cost. In the 20s and 30s, rayon made to imitate silk was all the rage. Silk was a big part of high fashion, and I assume still is, though being desperately unfashionable I wouldn't know, and silk-like rayon made that high fashion very accessible in a way that previously it had not been, so naturally enough there was a lot of demand for this plant-based fabric to meet the growing culture of affordable fashion. Teijin itself was a part of a Japanese corporate world that was in a pretty weird place in the 1930s. Since the Meiji Restoration, the common rhetoric among businessmen in Japan was that they were not about making a profit. They were out there to advance Japan's national economic interest. Wealth and economic prosperity for the company were mere outgrowths of this patriotic service. Of course, this was all rhetoric aimed at making these corporations look good at home and at advancing their own lobbying for government subsidies since they were defending the national interest. In practice, as our episode on Iwasaki Yataro showed pretty clearly, these were first and foremost businessmen who were in business to make money. This line of rhetoric, however, was not working as well in the 30s as it had before. After all, the Great Depression and the economic hardship it brought made businessmen pretty unpopular. Businessmen were perceived as enriching themselves at the continued expense of the suffering masses, a view expounded upon by the 11 sailors who murdered Prime Minister Inukai during their trial, where they basically just used the whole trial as a chance to lay out an ideological manifesto. Here's a little bit of that manifesto. Quote, Political parties, big business, and a small privileged group attached to the ruling class are sunk in corruption. They conspire in parties to pursue their own egoistic interests and desires to the neglect of national defense and the confusion of government, while at home the morale of the people collapses. 
This hostility towards major business figures was fanned by the press, which found that anti-business tirades sold papers pretty well, and to be fair, the actions of Japanese businessmen did not do a lot to restore confidence in their patriotism. For example, in September 1931, the Japanese government decided to delay a series of financial reforms intended to strengthen Japanese exports by devaluing the yen, thus making exports cheaper. Everyone knew devaluation was coming, but the government wanted more time to prepare for it, so in the interim, major Japanese banks used their yen reserves to buy up huge amounts of US dollars, which could then be exchanged again for way more yen once the devaluation happened. Mitsui alone made $50 million from this little maneuver, and public opinion was outraged. How dare these banks profit from the misery of the people? This is important context for us to understand why Tajin ended up at the heart of a scandal, or really I should say at the heart of its second scandal, because the 1934 Tajin incident was not the first time that Tajin had ended up in the public eye. Tajin got its start as a subsidiary of a company called Suzuki Shoten, a massive trading firm based out of Taiwan. Suzuki Shoten was a major player in the economy of the 1920s. It owned huge swaths of Taiwan's economy, thanks in large part to its special relationship with the state-owned Bank of Taiwan, because remember, Taiwan is a Japanese colony at this point. Suzuki Shoten is actually a pretty interesting company in its own right. It was, for a time, a major zaibatsu, one of the major Japanese economic megacorporations, which specialized in sugar, camphor, a tree oil used to make early forms of plastic, as well as insect repellents and perfume, and other exports from Taiwan. More interesting than their business portfolio, though, was their owner, Suzuki Yone. Suzuki was an Osaka-born daughter of a merchant family who married a guy named Suzuki Iwajiro, the original founder of Suzuki Shoten. However, he died back in the 1890s, and from that point onward, it was the widowed Suzuki Yone who actually ran Suzuki Shoten. She did a great job, too, thanks in large part to some well-timed business speculation at the end of World War I, Suzuki Shoten made cash hand over fist. Suzuki Yone quickly became known as the richest woman in Japan, and one of the richest women in the world. This actually also made her very unpopular. During the 1918 rice riots following the end of World War I, she actually had to go into hiding under an alias for fear of being attacked by a mob. Unfortunately for her, the good times did not last. The company had expanded substantially onto mainland Japan by the 1920s and took huge losses in the 1923 Great Kanto earthquake, which also took place during a financial crisis that hit Suzuki Shoten pretty badly. These both hurt Suzuki Shoten, but what really shellacked it was the 1927 Showa financial crisis. This was, well, a financial crisis caused by the government's response to the 1923 earthquake. To help companies recover, the government had handed out extremely cheap earthquake bonds to companies to finance repairs. Which, hey, nice idea, but there's always a problem with making it so easy to borrow large sums of money, it incentivizes spending in a, shall we say, less than careful way. And that's pretty much what happened. Under government orders to help with the recovery, 
banks gave out a lot of money to these companies. Many of those companies then speculated with that money on deals that went bad, meaning they couldn't pay the banks back and the banks had given out so much money that there was now a genuine fear they were going to run out of cash. And that led to a bank run, where people were trying to get their own money out of the banks before the banks fully ran out of money, and now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a full-blown financial panic on our hands. When the dust finally settled, some semblance of order had been restored to the financial system, but only at great cost. The sitting prime minister, Wakatsuki Reijiro, was forced to resign after the emperor's privy council rejected his initial plans to stop the crisis, which would have been a series of emergency Bank of Japan loans to rescue the faltering banks. His successor as Prime Minister, Tanaka Giichi, was able to fix things, but only with drastic measures. A three-week forced bank holiday where banks were closed by government order, as well as his own series of emergency loans. And even with those measures, a lot of smaller banks went under, their assets being gobbled up by the big Zaibatsu, which had the cash on hand to weather the storm. That led to an economy that was increasingly dominated by the Zaibatsu now more than ever, really, which furthered a sense of public resentment against the business world. But the crisis did actually destroy one Zaibatsu. Suzuki Shoten was so deeply in debt from its own attempts to restructure and expand that it just flat out went bankrupt in the middle of the crisis. Suzuki collapsed as a major Zaibatsu, though bits and pieces of the firm are still alive to this day. Now you might be wondering why we're spending so much time on Suzuki, isn't this supposed to be about the Tajin scandal? Well here's the thing, Tajin was one of the subsidiaries of Suzuki Shoten, so it was badly affected by the collapse of its parent company, and in the aftermath it got swept up in attempts to force Suzuki to make good on some of its debts as part of its bankruptcy process. Here's the deal. Suzuki's expansion and recovery had been funded in large part by the Bank of Taiwan, so when Suzuki went under, it left the Bank of Taiwan in a really bad place. The bank was the largest holder of Suzuki's debts, which now looked pretty unlikely to be repaid in that there was no more Suzuki, and it was in danger of collapsing too. To save the bank, the Japanese government made an arrangement between the Bank of Taiwan, the Bank of Japan, and Suzuki Shoten, or what was left of it. The Bank of Taiwan would be compensated for its debts by taking over some of the assets of Suzuki Shoten. Most importantly for us, 225,233 shares of one of Suzuki's most valuable subsidiaries, the Imperial Rayon Company, Teikoku Jinzo Kenshi Kabushiki Gaisha, or for short, Teijin. The Bank of Taiwan would then hold these shares under an agreement that it would have to sell them within 10 years, giving the shares some time to recover value after the collapse of Suzuki Shoten. The Bank of Taiwan would also get three seats on Tajin's board of directors to ensure that this investment paid off. Once the shares were sold, that money would be used to pay off the Bank of Japan, which was going to provide a big ol' pile of bailout funds to the Bank of Taiwan to save it from short-term bankruptcy. So now the Bank of Taiwan owns Tajin and it's trying to help recover Tajin's value to sell the company and pay its own debts. With me so far? Good. 
because we're going to leave Tajin here for a second and talk a bit more about the atmosphere of Japanese business in the 1930s. That atmosphere was, well, pretty hostile to big business throughout Japan. Throughout the 20s, there were constant newspaper stories about corruption in major Japanese firms, and in particular, investigations into business bankruptcies, which revealed a pretty disturbing trend. Many of these firms were going bankrupt not because they'd gotten really unlucky, but because of, frankly, terrible management. In particular, businessmen were under constant pressure from their stockholders, especially major stockholders like the family banks that lay at the center of Zaibatsu networks, to pay big dividends. So a dividend is a share of a company's profits that go to its stockholders. Normally, those are paid out of the net profits. That is, after all expenses and costs for running the company are deducted. But most Japanese firms in the 20s and 30s were paying them out of the gross profits, that is, without deducting expenses. Some of them weren't even doing that. They were paying dividends out of capital, out of the money that was supposed to be laid aside to help the firm grow and to weather any problems. And they were paying larger dividends than normal, about twice what an equivalent American firm would pay in dividends at the time. Business, in other words, was being treated as a way of making short-term profits for shareholders, not as a way of investing in the long-term fiscal health of the country or the economy. The pressure to pay these dividends at any cost led to high-profile instances of falsified books in several companies or other cases of misconduct. Some of these could get pretty high-profile. In 1934, it came out that the leadership of Tokyo Gas Company had paid out half a million yen in bribes to secure city and national contracts in 1929 because this was the only way it could secure more investment capital and thus continue to both grow as a company and pay the outrageous dividends their shareholders demanded. The investigation that followed not only swept up Tokyo Gas, but many other prominent figures as well, at least two deputy mayors of Tokyo and three members of the Diet House of Representatives. And they weren't even the most prestigious names attached to this particular bribery scandal. Rumors continued to swirl that other high-ranking figures were involved, including the Emperor's Privy Counselor Ito Myoji, Minister of Commerce and Industry Sakurauchi Yukio, and Governor General of Korea Ugaki Kazushige. Their names were eventually dropped from the eventual indictment against Tokyo Gas, but the damage was still done. Major figures in the government were involved in something that didn't appear to be entirely above board, and that in turn suggested corruption at the highest possible levels, which was not a good look in terms of maintaining any sense of confidence in Japan's government, regardless of how true the allegations actually were. Sometimes, these confrontations over the behavior of major businesses could even result in very public fights between different parts of the government. Probably the best example of this was a high-profile case from 1932 involving the Meiji Sugar Company, whose CEO, Soma Hanji, was accused of tax evasion. Soma was detained by Japanese authorities on May 11, 1932, in a huge scandal that pretty much nobody remembers because four days later those radical navy sailors stormed into the office of the prime minister and stabbed him and hey, that seems like kind of a bigger deal. Solma was ultimately released 
after the head of the tax bureau of the finance ministry, Nakajima Teppe, decided that the charges of tax evasion were not enough to hold him. But that decision opened Nakajima up to a lot of criticism. Politicians in the Diet who wanted to humiliate the sitting government, or who wanted to establish their own credibility as anti-corruption for their re-election purposes, called Nakajima to the floor of the Diet to have him testify as to just why he had let this feckless businessman get away with the crime of shirking his just responsibility to help support the state with his taxes. A very public spectacle, calculated to humiliate Nakajima and Meiji Sugar. At this point, Soma Hanji and Meiji Sugar tried to make the whole thing go away by sending some corporate lawyers to the finance ministry and offering to just pay any back taxes they were found to owe, and there the matter would have rested, except for the fact that at this point, another branch of the government decided to get involved. This was the Tokyo District Court, the local court with jurisdiction over the city. The District Court for Tokyo has a special set of procurators, essentially the equivalent of a district attorney. They are responsible for representing the state, or in this case the city, in any legal proceeding. Anyway, the Tokyo District Court procurator who got involved with this case was a lawyer named Kuroda Etsuro. He really wanted to see Meiji Sugar pay a higher price for tax evasion than it looked like they would. So Kuroda went to the finance ministry and asked the ministry to issue an official complaint against Meiji Sugar. This would allow the procurator's office to step in and investigate and to subpoena records from Meiji Sugar to demand the company give those records to the government, in other words, so the company would not have time to go through and destroy any records which suggested they had underpaid their taxes. Nakajima Teppe and the tax bureau rejected that for reasons that, I'll be honest, are not super clear to me, but for whatever reason, Nakajima believed that further investigation was not necessary and declined Kuroda's request to involve the procurator's office. On June 24, 1932, Kuroda tried one more time to get permission to investigate by sending a written request to the finance ministry to please just let him do his job. On that same day, a bunch of Japanese newspapers, again for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me, were they encouraged to do this, ran a bunch of stories critical of the finance ministry for just letting Meiji Sugar off the hook and allowing them to get away with, at best, a slap on the wrist. And the growing perception that there was something untoward about this whole thing was only strengthened when news came that the Tokyo Procurator's Office, based on its initial investigations, had recommended 34.5 million yen in fines against Meiji Sugar, combined with an estimated back tax payment of 7.5 million yen, so 42 million yen in total. The finance ministry, meanwhile, ended up actually assessing a paltry 600,000 yen in fines and 120,000 yen in back taxes. Despite a lot of public pressure to reopen the investigation, that never happened. Instead, the Prime Minister who had succeeded the assassinated Inukai, Admiral Saito Makoto, announced that he accepted the Finance Ministry's judgment and considered the matter closed. Now, far more important than the question of how much money Meiji Sugar actually owed in back taxes, and to be clear, I got no idea what the answer is there, is the fact that two branches of the Japanese government, really three if you count the Diet, had now had a public fight over that question, which... A, did not do a lot to address worries about corruption at the highest levels, 
and B, created an atmosphere of suspicion around government judgments on corruption cases. Who could be trusted to tell the truth if the different branches of the government couldn't even agree on what actually happened? This gives you some sense of the atmosphere of Japan at this time, and the intense, hostile atmosphere which pervaded the worlds of politics and business in Japan, the level of scandal, the sense that both business and political leaders were playing the people for their own ends, was badly eroding trust in the government. The extent to which politics had really become this toxic endeavor became very clear shortly after all of this went down. You see, the cabinet which replaced the assassinated Inukai Tsuyoshi, headed by Admiral Saito Makoto, was positioned as a national unity cabinet, which included figures from both major political parties the Seiyukai, or Friends of Government, and the Minseito, or Constitutional Democratic Party, as well as several non-party leaders, including actually Admiral Saito himself. Which, hey, nice feel-good move here, but it also pissed off a lot of political party leaders who felt that being forced into a national unity government was a violation of electoral precedent, because remember, the emperor, or really the emperor's advisors who used their position to influence what the emperor said, had the ability to directly appoint ministers, selecting them via elections was a convention, not the actual law of the imperial constitution. So these party leaders took it upon themselves to try and discredit this national unity cabinet and force Admiral Saito to resign by any means necessary. They keyed in on two figures in the Saito cabinet, whose reputations they could tarnish, to smear Saito by association. The first of these was the education minister and seiyukai politician Hatoyama Ichiro, one of the most famous figures in Japanese politics, who was in this instance accused of accepting a bribe by a seiyukai diet member named Okamoto Kazumi. Now, Hatoyama was swiftly cleared of the bribery charge, which as far as I can tell had zero substance to it, but was still worried enough about his own reputation and the stability of the Saito cabinet that he decided to resign from office. Target number two was the Minister of Commerce and Industry, Nakajima Kumakichi, and frankly the charge leveled against him was even more ludicrous. You see, way back in 1921, Nakajima had visited a temple in Shizuoka that had a statue of the shogun Ashikaga Takuji inside. After seeing the statue, Nakajima had penned a short article in a haiku, which he submitted to a literary magazine, in which he basically stated that Ashikaga's historical legacy as a figure should be reevaluated and viewed more positively. Takauji, you might recall, was a warlord from the 1300s who had helped depose the ruling Hojo samurai family as part of a bid to restore power to the imperial throne, but who had then betrayed the emperor and seized power for himself. At least, that's the narrative about Takauji that was popular in the 30s and, to a certain extent, was still popular today, that he was a talented but ultimately ruthless and reviled traitor to his lord who seized power he had no right to claim. Nakajima's stance was not that Takauji was somehow secretly a good guy, he pretty manifestly was not, but that the condemnation of him in the official histories taught to Japan's youth glossed over a lot. Not to get too deep into the weeds here, but we talked, for example, about how the emperor Takauji betrayed was not exactly a great politician. There was a very real chance he would have led Japan into chaos. 
Nakajima suggested that maybe this analysis of Takauji as this uniquely villainous traitor to the Emperor, and thus to all that was upright and good, should be reassessed. In 1933, his enemies got a hold of this old article and used it to attack Nakajima as disrespectful to the imperial throne. How could anyone who claimed to serve Japan's heavenly sovereign dare to think of someone like Ashikaga Takauji as anything other than the most vile traitor who had ever lived? A barrage of press condemning Nakajima, combined with a round of condemnation from members of the Diet, led to Nakajima's eventual resignation from the cabinet as well. A. Morgan Young, a British newspaperman acting as editor-in-chief of the English-language Japan Chronicle, Riley observed of the whole situation that, quote, "...the exigencies of loyalty had become so great that it was now disloyal to admire the fine qualities of a 14th-century dictator." Unquote. Scandals like these absolutely crushed any sense of public confidence in, for lack of a more definite term, the system of Japan. Government leaders were divided over how to handle the most basic issues and sniping at each other over the most minor scandals, while business leaders were at least perceived as lining their own pockets in private, which, again, not entirely unfair, while publicly waving the flag of Japanese patriotism all the while. The whole situation was such that the editorial board of the Asahi Shimbun, in summing up the whole Nakajima-Hatayama debacle and the subsequent resignations, was, if anything, understating the issue when they said that, quote, Altogether, the tone of discussion in the Diet fell even lower than in former sessions, and the credit of political parties among the people has suffered even further. And all of this is why, when we turn our attention back to Tajin, with the majority of its shares owned by the Bank of Taiwan, which was hoping to pay back its bailout by selling all of those shares, all of a sudden a profoundly unsexy stock transaction could kick up a massive political scandal. You see, in June of 1933, a group of investors came to the Bank of Taiwan with an offer to take Tejin's stock off their hands. Well, actually several some ones, the rayon industry was booming as the depression of the 30s meant that fewer and fewer people had any money to spend on things like fancy clothes made of silk, and rayon-based replacements became all the rage. Among those who came calling to the Bank of Taiwan were a small group of investors known as the Banchol Group, or Banchol-kai, named for the trendy neighborhood of central Tokyo where they met every month. Led by one of Japan's most elite financiers, the group offered to buy some shares of Tajin, and the leaders of the Bank of Taiwan, presumably with those cartoon show-style dollar signs floating across their eyes, said yes. And in the process, they unleashed a truly massive political scandal, though at the time they had no idea. Next week, we'll find out just how deep into the weeds they managed to stray, but that's a story for another time. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to new patron Jed Pendergrass for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at giantenemy underscore crab. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we take on part two of the Tajin scandal.